0: sourcing can change the world discuss hi everybody i'm bob bowman editor-in-chief for supply chain brain and this is the supply chain brain podcast We've all heard the horror stories about the mistreatment of factory workers in distant countries with low-cost labor, in some cases resulting in injuries or even deaths. When manufacturers many years ago began flocking to China and other parts of Asia in a bid to cut labor costs, it felt as though outsourcing was an automatic violation of human rights and a guaranteed road to the mistreatment of workers. So it might come as a big surprise to hear someone say, sourcing can change the world. That someone is my guest today. She is Dawn Tura, president of the Sourcing Industry Group, and she's here to talk about how responsible sourcing policies can lift economies, mitigate climate change, and empower workers. She sees corporate sourcing strategies as the single most effective lever we have for driving real social change. At the same time, she's candid about the obstacles that need to be surmounted in order for that statement to have meaning. We talk offshoring, reshoring, and right shoring. Here's my conversation with Don Tura. Don Tura, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you, Bob. I'm excited to be here.
0: Don, I believe I've heard you say that sourcing can change the world. What do you mean by that?
1: <laughs> well, we can. And I don't think people understand what the power of the money that we spend in supply chain can really do to the world. We have lifted entire um, classes. So let me, take, let me give you an example. When okay. we first started outsourcing manufacturing to China, we created a middle class that didn't exist before. And we've raised an entire class of people out of poverty into middle class. And while some people see that as bad, by outsourcing our manufacturing and creating a middle class, what we also did is created people that had money to spend. And a lot of the money they wanted to spend were on Western goods and services. So literally, by choosing where we source or from whom we source to, we can lift people out of poverty. And if you take someone in a war-torn region and you give someone, let's say an engineer, an opportunity to work behind a desk, That's what they would prefer to do is work and and make money for their families. But when the work doesn't exist and people aren't earning income, what do they do? They take to the streets to try and change and make change within their region. So we literally can lift people out of poverty. We can change people's lives through sourcing. And I passionately believe that. So it's something that I wish people could understand the power of what it is that we do.
0: Okay. No argument there. But what is the price of getting to that point where you created the middle class? What are you putting those people through necessarily? Because certainly there were multiple instances and reports of very poor working conditions in various factories in Taiwan and China. The demands on the people were intense. And, okay, the end result is you got a middle class, but do we not need to worry about how we get there?
1: We absolutely do. We have a responsibility as sourcing professionals. We have to take things like sustainability, like human trafficking, like work conditions into account. And I think it's the advent of social media and the Internet and how quickly news can be shared. We were not fully aware of that in the beginning. You know, you figure back when we first started doing some outsourcing to China, we didn't have the visibility. We do now. And shame on us if we are not sourcing responsibly. And you think about India when we started doing a lot of application development outsourcing, once again, lifted a lot of people out of poverty. But once again, work conditions make a difference. And depending on the countries that we outsource to or the people and the companies that we source from, it is our responsibility to make sure that it it meets the same ethics and morals that our companies stand for. And that is the responsibility of a sourcing professional. You're absolutely right. And I'm glad you brought that up.
0: And certainly over the years, we have acquired the tools to do the job. There's no you know, limit on NGOs willing to help out and observe. And the ability to go to these factories and meet these suppliers and, and also use technological tools has certainly achieved a level of visibility. But I'm wondering if in the last year and a half during the pandemic, with the inability to meet face-to-face, whether in fact our ability to gain visibility of worker treatment has deteriorated. Has there been a problem?
1: Yes and no. I think the more important part during the pandemic is we had suddenly a realization that a lot of us did not know who our fourth parties were. We knew who we were buying from, but we weren't clear on who our suppliers' suppliers were. And that is how, one, we found out that thought we had sourced responsibly and had multiple parties. But if the parties that we source from, let's say we do dual sourcing, And both the people we source from in dual sourcing source from the same fourth party. We didn't have that visibility. And as a result of the pandemic, we're now looking further into the supply chain than we did before because we're recognizing that that fourth party matters a lot as well. So back to your original question, I think we have more visibility deeper into our supply chain. But with technology, now that we know we should be looking one more tier down, I think we're going to gain more visibility And I really believe in robotics and the ability to have remote access to a factory floor. I don't need to walk the factory. If I can have the remote access, whether it be a robot that wanders around and looks where I want to look or interview people I want to interview, I don't necessarily have to walk the floor any longer. So I wouldn't say the pandemic reduced our visibility. It certainly did from a a personal seat on the ground, but I wouldn't say necessarily that if you didn't use technology, which we all had to move to, you would have been crazy not to use that to also observe your suppliers.
0: That's interesting. I hadn't heard much about the use of robots for this purpose, certainly the use of cameras and and mobile phones and the like and all kinds of tools that give us that visibility into the factory. But are there actually robots now that are tasked with that job of running around the factory watching the way in which yeah, workers work?
1: Absolutely. In fact, we brought some to a, a couple of our summits. Remotely, as long as you have a good internet connection, you can drive that robot and you can tell it where to look. You can tell it where to go. It doesn't have the ability to open doors, so don't think of a robot, the Jetsons, with arms and legs. (laughs) But it has a camera, it has a screen, it has your face, it has the ability to listen, turn. Yeah, so incredibly cool to, and and, you know, we use them now for some remote meetings where you actually want to sit at a conference table and participate and you can't physically be there. But to use it on a factory floor is just fantastic because it doesn't take a large footprint. They're typically about four and a half feet tall and about a foot and a half wide. They can turn on a dime and they're very, very flexible on going where you want to drive them. So if I could put my, if you figure my face is on the screen and I'm driving and seeing through the screen of my robot, I can go all over the factory and I can ask questions. I can have conversations. I can interrupt people and say, can you take a moment? So it's as good as being there physically without the jet lag. How do
0: you vet a new supplier when you're onboarding a supplier or a contract manufacturer? What are the initial steps you want to take to make sure that this entity is a reliable and responsible partner?
1: Well, I think the most important thing is that the first lens I look through for any new supplier relationship is going to be third-party risk. If you're a sourcing professional and you're in a supply chain right now and you don't think it's your responsibility I would beg to differ with you because we are the very first place to introduce risk into our supply chains. So first, I want to make sure that the company has a reputation that aligns with my corporation. So whether it be your ESG, your environmental social governance score, whether it be that you are very keen on modern slavery in the supply chain, that you're not using conflict minerals, that you're not money laundering. I have the checklist of things that I want to go through that could absolutely destroy my company from a third-party risk perspective. So first, I want to look at that and say, am I mitigating any possible risk that this supplier could introduce into our supply chain? Mm-hmm. So first, what is the risk? And then can we mitigate it? And then is the risk something that is within the risk appetite of my organization and my board? So that is the very first thing I look to. I am very keenly aware of those attributes before four I ever even talk about total cost of ownership or value or anything else. If you can't meet that threshold that I've set for my organization, I shouldn't be doing business with you. I don't care how great your price is. I don't care if your total cost looks really good. If you don't match up to the way our organization is designed and what is important to us, I don't want to do business with you. So that's the very first lens that I put on any kind of supplier search diversity, equity, and inclusion, if we're looking for change in that regard, or CSR, ESG, you know, the alphabet soup. Mm -hmm. That's important to my organization, and that's the first thing I'm going to look for when I look for suppliers.
0: How important is it that you have the supplier sign and adhere to a supplier code of conduct, and how detailed should that document be?
1: Well, that's very interesting. We even use it within our association, and our supplier's every provider that comes to SIG and is part of SIG signs the Provider Code of Conduct. So I feel that's near and personal to me from SIG's perspective, but within sourcing and supply chain, it is tantamount that everybody understands the degree that we're going to be looking and measuring. And so I think it's very important that a code of conduct is in writing and you know, we also have to be aware that there are differences based on geographies, based on the nuances of how people do business in other countries. If I'm in a country where bribery is part of every day and we are anti-bribery, then we're going to have to make sure that they recognize that our company will not abide by that. We always are able to find providers that are willing and able to talk about new ways of doing business, and sometimes they realize it's a better way overall,
0: mm-hmm. but.
1: I have absolutely no issue whatsoever asking them to, to sign a supplier code of conduct only, but I will say, I want to preface, only if their executives sign it. It's not enough to get an agent on the ground or your first you know, line of contact. It's really important that it comes from the executives, that they understand that this is going to be required.
0: But that that, that executive statement also be disseminated down to the to factory floor, to the actual plant managers who also must exactly. adhere to it as well. Because they can yeah. talk all they it's want about how great they are, but when it comes down to the daily, to doing business in the factory, that's another issue altogether, maybe.
1: Yeah, and that's, you know, anything like you think about change management, you might accept a change in the middle of the organization, but it has to be sold up, down, and across, and then initiated with action at every level. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. But without the executive buy-in, I would feel much more reluctant to think it's ever going to resonate anywhere else yeah. in the organization.
0: Now, I want to talk more about this idea of visibility through the sub-tiers of a manufacturing supply chain because so often the horror stories that we hear are in the sub-tiers, second, third, fourth, wherever, and so often they come as a surprise. The OEM or or the brand will say, I had no idea. My product was being produced (laughs) in that factory in Bangladesh where the roof caved in and killed all those people. We weren't there on purpose. We didn't know that. That's got to be more and more difficult. Okay, tier one, fine. You have contact with them all the time. How do you recommend that companies get that visibility going up the additional tiers?
1: Sometimes it's difficult because a lot of suppliers want to keep their next tier private because they don't want it to be known where they're sourcing from. And unfortunately in, in today's day and age, so I, I'm always thinking of as third parties and fourth parties, but first tier needs to understand that we need visibility into second tier and third tier because a lot of the impact is coming further down the supply chain, and that's still directly my responsibility. It takes a while to get that transparency, and it takes trust. It also takes – that's when sometimes a physical – being able to go and look at these next-tier suppliers is very, very helpful. But it's just something that we have to insist on, and – and suppliers are starting to realize that it's important and they're going to have to share their information and we're happy to sign NDAs and we're not giving away their secret sauce or anything like that. But the lack of that is why we've started to find during the pandemic that all roads seem to lead to China. So even if I had diversified and I'm in Vietnam and China, and both of the organizations I'm buying from both buy from the same factory within China, All roads were leading back to the same spot, and I had no idea. So I'm thinking I'm diversified because I have two different countries, Mm -hmm. and I wasn't diversified at all. So we have to have visibility further into our supply chain if we're going to build any kind of resiliency.
0: Even beyond China, though, I mean, you you had referenced conflict materials. What about the end tier? What about the farm? What about the mine? That is really hard to know where your raw materials are actually being produced. Who can help you or how can you achieve visibility all the way at the, uh, the beginning of a supply chain?
1: Yeah, and that's where I think blockchain is finally going to have its day. And I'm by no means blockchain expert or anything like that. But custody of our supply chain is very important. And knowing which firm and are they using sustainable business practices, are they using free range, are they actually not using chemicals that are adverse to our climate? Those are very important um, attributes. And what's driving that is a lot of the consumerism and the visibility. So if I have consumers who are demanding it, I have to make it the owner's responsibility on my supply chain to find that visibility. So I think it's really important. I think we're getting down to understanding exactly which farms my product came from, and I can then find out what kind of attributes that farm has, and are they sustainable, and are they using chemicals, or is it fully organic? That's become very important to consumers. So parts of our supply chain, food in particular, is becoming one that people want to be able to go right down to the very source. And I think as we figure out how to do that and how blockchain can contribute, I think eventually we will be doing it in all parts of our supply chain.
0: So let's say you've got your supplier vetted, trusted partner, you're looking at the multiple tiers, everything looks good. You sign the document and you get going on on a partnership. How do you make sure that suppliers uphold their commitments over a continuous basis? What kind of exercise do you do you undertake? What do you do to make sure that this lasts indefinitely?
1: And that varies by organization. It used to be in early sourcing days that you would strategically source, get the right provider, put the agreement in place, and then throw it over to the business unit. And then they never bought on contract. And so it didn't, it wasn't working. We've realized Both that we have to bring in our business unit and users into the equation for the selection, help them understand the selection. But then we have to have governance over these agreements once they're put in place. We can't just put an agreement in place and assume it's going to babysit itself. And it's not an agreement. In the olden days, you used to go to a binder on a shelf and occasionally look up a written contract. It now, through technology, we should have so many checks and balances. To make sure that we, one, are buying what we contracted for, two, we're getting the right total value that we contracted for, and three, that we're looking and we're still checking on all of the areas of risk. Have they kept their certifications up? Are, if it was an ISO standard or diversity standard or insurance standard, whatever it may be, you know, that, that we check back on a routine basis. And there are a lot of good, risk-oriented companies out there with software that can manage the financial risk. They can notify us of geopolitical risk. We should be very aware. And there's climate risk, disaster risk, and all that. So I think a lot of it is the world has gotten very, very small, which should make it easier to manage. But that, as a result of the globe really being small, it's become much more complex. So I rely a lot on technology, and I think some of these new technology providers that are out there are just phenomenal at the visibility. And so we're always searching and trying to find who else can give us visibility so that we're making sure that we're still – that these contracts that we went into two years, three years, five years later are still doing what we originally – and the original intention is still being met.
0: There's always the temptation to cut corners because margins on so many of these manufactured (laughs) products are so narrow. Is there an appetite in the C-suite? Now, you talked about the commitment at the top of the um, charts for the supplier. What about the OEM and the brand? Is there an appetite for spending the kind of money that you need to spend in order to do the right thing, even if it means it's going to cost you more?
1: There wasn't in the past. I think now we actually... So let me preface it. I'm a CPA by training and trade, So, but I'm a recovered CPA, but I <laughs> do believe all the money. And I do believe you can make sure to show the total cost of ownership and the total value. It does take work and it does need to be updated because as soon as one of either my processes or my supplier's processes change, my total cost of ownership does change. So cost models need to be updated. But I think you definitely can show the total value. And I think we learned, I hope we learned that cutting corners and looking at price is never good in the long term. And we have to have a long-term perspective. And I'll tell you, honestly, when the pandemic started, I was so worried we were going to go back like we did during the 2008 recession. We threw out diversity. We threw out anything to do with carbon, green. We were calling it green a lot more back then. And we went to price, 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 because it was a recession. And when the pandemic hit, I was so afraid we were going to go backward 10 years again. And we didn't. People mm. still focus on total cost and value. They still focus on diversity, equity, inclusion. They still talk about ESG and CSR. So once again, I think we're in an era now where we're not going to be able to go backward. And I think we're going to be able to keep that visibility. So I'm very optimistic. Yeah, I
0: was going to ask you, Don. finally, how do you feel right now? About the state of affairs in offshore manufacturing, do you get a general positive sense that things are going in the right direction? Are you concerned about any particular parts of the world or concerned about the commitments of top brands and manufacturers? Just what, what's your vibe as to where we are in this place right now?
1: There has become an understanding when people first said, I can't believe that Ford Motors opened a plant in China. And what people thought is that we had outsourced manufacturing to China. And the reality was we hadn't. The reason Ford opened a plant in China was because they were selling cars and trucks in China. They weren't producing cars to the United States and China and shipping them. They couldn't have afforded that. That didn't make sense with the cost savings in manufacturing. Mm-hmm. But at the same token, we did outsource a tremendous amount of manufacturing, and we've offshored it. And we did realize during the pandemic that we need some nearer sources of inventory and accessibility. And so I think there's going to be some shoring going on, and that's sort of the term that's thrown around, is that we're going to realize that we're going to need a certain percentage closer into the locations where it's going to be needed and required, and that may mean additional costs. I do think we're going to see a return to some inventory that we had gotten rid of with just-in-time and everything like that. So I do think we're looking at more onshoring than we had in the past, but I would really say it's more right shoring, having it in the right critical locations as necessary. And all the experts say this is a pandemic, but it's not going to be our last one. And I hope to heaven that we've all woken up and realized that something can happen on a global scale that could be catastrophic that we've never considered before. And wow, we need to make sure that we've got resiliency. So I'm really hoping that this is going to cause us all to next time we think that we're, oh, we've got ourselves covered, that we just might not, and something catastrophic could happen again, and that we're prepared. I don't want to be a doomsday theorist or anything like that, but we need to be better prepared than we were at the start and even the beginning of the pandemic. So I think there will be a lot more right shoring. so I feel optimistic about it.
0: It's always something we never considered before, but... Don Tura of the Sourcing Industry Group, I want to thank you so much for talking to me about this critical issue of responsible sourcing. Thank you so much for shining a light on what's going on and giving us some hope for progress as well. Thank you very much for being with me.
1: Thank you. I enjoyed my time with you today. Thank you.
0: That was my conversation with Don Tura of the Sourcing Industry Group. Talking about the power of ethical sourcing strategies. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my think tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, follow us on Twitter at scbrain, and also watch videos on our YouTube channel. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.